This episode of Lunch Agenda is sponsored by Brian Smith of Compass Real Estate. Brian helped me buy my house five years ago and wanted to support Lunch Agenda just like he supports so many of Washington's greatest causes. I encourage you to check him out at compass.com if you're ready to look at houses in D.C. He is the best, and I'm happy to tell you all about him. Tune in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Hey everyone, welcome to Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio. We're broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in DC, and I'm your host, Kiko Bourne. I usually describe Lunch Agenda as a food advocacy and education show. And oftentimes we're educating about touchy-feely things, which I might say are more my general wheelhouse. Things like how it feels to work in produce distribution as the child of produce pickers, or how can we inspire kids to want to cook more at home. But today, I have in store for you an education on some real hard data. A big report was recently released by the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments that's the closest thing we have to a census or real-time snapshot of agriculture in the broader D.C. food shed. You might be asking, who is the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments? The, the council is a nonprofit association that brings together 300 elected officials from 24 local governments, the Maryland and Virginia state legislatures, and U.S. Congress to address major regional issues in the, D, in the District of Columbia, suburban Maryland, and Northern Virginia. So I'm proud to say that right here, right now, you're about to hear the first interview the coordinators of this report are giving to spread the word about their findings. I'm going to be talking with Lindsay Smith, who leads the Metropolitan Washington Council of Government's development of a regional food systems program. Lindsay is one of the most impactful connectors in our DC food shed that I know. I say that absolutely, um, you know, as, as, as boldly as I can, Lindsay convenes leaders from all kinds of food system organizations in this area to further our work. And this report that we'll be hearing about today is truly the fruit of her labor, um, built on the insights she's gleaned from all of the diverse relationships um, in this space. And it was Lindsay, actually, who suggested that we add another expert to our conversation, Chris Van Vlack, who's a farmer and conservationist with the Loudoun Soil and Water Conservation District. And Chris will add his perspectives to the findings of this agricultural report. But... Before I dig in with Lindsay and Chris, let's get going with this week's roundup of food news headlines. So we'll start Kiko's food news today with a quick review of how last week's local elections affected our food system nationally. So we all know that the Democrats took control of the House while Republicans hang on to the hung on to the majority in the Senate. But with regards to the food industry, voters in Arkansas and Missouri resoundingly approved ballot measures that will increase the minimum wage for low-paid workers. Neither of those of those measures will affect servers and other restaurant workers who receive the tip minimum wage, but it will certainly affect those in the fast food industry who have been vocal about the need for a living wage. Outside of those measures, Chicago voters approved a ban on plastic straws within city, <clears throat> excuse me, 
within city limits, and Washington State passed an initiative blocking any future soda taxes throughout the state, caveat being the measure does not reverse Seattle's existing soda tax. Headline two. I was inspired uh, recently to read about a new group based in Los Angeles called United Parents and Students, which has 12,000 volunteers and 12 full-time employees and a mission of strengthening communities. And last year, its Food Justice Committee developed the Store of Excellence Award to incentivize neighborhood grocery stores to improve or remain satisfactory in their ability to offer healthy, fresh food. So this is the first... um, guerrilla or grassroots, I would say, organization that's that's created its own stamp of approval to hold grocers accountable to what they're offering to a community. One recent Store of Excellence awardee in Englewood, for example, won the award for simple successes like being clean and clean smelling and carrying several kinds of produce. Um, and, you know, this is remarkable when the status quo is sour milk and stale bread that's often available at corner stores in that neighborhood. So that's an organization I want to keep my eye on, the United Parents and Students group. Finally, zooming back into D.C. food news, the D.C. Department of General Services has issued a request for proposals for farmers who want to lease two plots of land totaling about 20,000 square feet one in the Kingman Park neighborhood and one in the Brightwood Park neighborhood of D.C. This offering is part of D.C.'s Urban Farming Land Lease Program, which began in 2014 as one of the city's first big steps in an ambitious sustainability plan. Applicants with experience in agriculture who are district residents can submit to use the land at no cost for 5 to 13 years. Proposals are due November 21st, so an interesting range of applicants is emerging already, including both nonprofits and for-profits. For example, one applicant is a graduate of Arcadia's Veteran Farmer Program, another is the president of Ancho Cider, and a third is Compost Cab, the company that is charged that has charged to haul away household compost since 2010. So with that DC, with that update on DC Urban Ag. I'll close out food news for the day so we can take a quick break and then we'll be back for a conversation about the new What Our Region Grows report with Lindsay and Chris. Stay tuned. episode of Lunch Agenda is sponsored by Brian Smith of Compass Real Estate. Brian helped me buy my house five years ago and wanted to support Lunch Agenda just like he supports so many of Washington's greatest causes. I encourage you to check him out at compass.com if you're ready to look at houses in DC. He's the best and I'm happy to tell you all about him. Welcome back to Lunch Agenda. I'm your host, Kiko Bourne, and we're about to squeeze years of agricultural research into the next 25 minutes as we unveil findings from the newest What Our Region Grows report on agricultural production in metropolitan Washington. 
I'm very fortunate to be joined in studio by two experts because I in no way would be able to present and um, editorialize on this information myself. So I have Lindsay Smith from the policy side and Chris Van Vlack from the farming and land conservation side. So let me introduce them. Lindsay Smith is a food systems consultant working with the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments to develop a regional food systems program that will support the growth of our region's food economy. Lindsay hails from Michigan, another great ag state, and that that homeland continues to inspire her. She's lived in D.C., though, for more than 10 years and holds a master's in urban planning and a master's in environmental policy. Welcome, welcome, Lindsay. Thanks, Kiko. And Chris. Chris Van Vlack works as the urban and agricultural conservationist for the Loudoun Soil and Water Conservation District, where he helps both farmers and suburban landowners with conservation issues on their properties. He also has his own Loudoun-based farming operation, Hanging Rock Hay, and currently serves as president of Loudoun Farm Bureau, an agricultural advocacy organization. Chris hails from Northern Virginia and graduated from American University right here in the district. Welcome, Chris. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for making the trip in to, to join me in the studio. It means a lot. So I'm going to start with you, Lindsay. I, I want to start by just getting some background for, for this report before we dive into its findings. I know that it took a ton of time to gather data about things like the age of every farmer in the region or the exact yield of every crop grown in this region. How long did it take to compile and analyze this data? And can you just tell us a bit about the methodology for the report? Sure, Kiko. I think, you know, to start off with, we were lucky that we were building upon the work of the Council of Governments. We call it the COG. Great. COGS Regional Agricultural Work Group, which is a group that's comprised of uh, folks like Chris who work on soil and water conservation, implementing best practices with farmers um, towards you know a more healthy Chesapeake Bay, agricultural marketing specialists around the district um, in Maryland and Virginia primarily. Um, we now have the DC Food Policy Director on board. We have a couple nonprofits that work on land conservation market development for local food and um, also a few farmers and they first wrote this report starting in about 2010 um, I think that's about the right time frame Chris was actually a founding member so he nice. is probably even more well versed in the history than I am but um, it was a long process and a lot of it was based on census of agriculture data which comes out every five years as you probably know the um, 2017 census is complete, and we'll get that information sometime this spring. So and we'll that's produced by the USDA? That is produced by the um, USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service, yes. And we'll have an even more contemporary picture of what our region grows come this spring. Um, the data analysis does take some time. We have an amazing intern Jimmy Shu, who also does um, now agricultural consulting. But um, as far as, so there wasn't a lot of, you know, data collection, original data collection per se. There was, however, on the urban agriculture side, which we can talk about more later because we don't get that type of data from the census of ag. So, you know, I would say it's a lot of um, data gathering from other sources, such as the USDA. Um, and then, you know, 
presenting a picture that our regional ag work group reacts to and um, tells us a little bit more about what's actually happening on the in happening on the ground with farms. Why you know is it why are different um, types of products showing up as um, you know being vastly more produced in one census than another? What what's really going on? And Chris, since you were there from the beginning. Am I understanding that the yeah, why why was this report needed? Is it because the USDA census doesn't zoom as close into our region, and we wanted more specific information, or why did you all create this new report? Well, when I got started with the group, and again, it was probably back in 2006 or 2007, I selfishly saw it as a way to connect with folks around the region that were doing kind of the same thing I was and making connections across the river. Um, but as we sat around the table, we this product became sort of the focus of the group, and it was sort of compiling like what we're doing in all of our localities, what our localities are producing, um, and then being able to use that document. Uh, I think the biggest reason we needed this document is to be able to go back to the boards of supervisors in the various member um, localities of COG and be able to say, listen, agriculture is an important part of your economy and an important part of your landscape. And unless you're living it, unless you're working in it, unless you're somehow connected through it, through the environment or through land use, it, it can be very invisible. Uh, if you're from suburban Loudoun County or Fairfax County or Montgomery County or Prince George's, you may not see agriculture on a day-to-day basis. Let alone urban D.C. Correct, let alone in D.C. So this is a document that both shows how much food we are consuming as a, loca- as a, as a region, but also shows here's the things we are able to produce. And I think selfishly, as, as someone who's interested in promoting local agriculture and promoting maintaining a land base and conserving a land base for local agriculture, is we can go back to our... Uh, our boards of supervisors members and our represent representatives and say, listen, we have got a, a abundant market here for our local products. We need to make sure we have that land base in order to supply those products to produ- to consumers who are hungry for them. Really interesting. So this is kind of, kind of ammunition in building your case for land conservation. Correct. That's, that's helpful. And, and Chris, before I move forward at all, why do you grow hay? Tell us a little bit about your hay farming operation. So when I got into farming, it was sort of randomly. I ended up uh, getting a job right after graduating from American at, at uh, Frying Pan Park in Herndon and thinking it would be a summer job. And stayed there two years, got really into agriculture, and uh, then got the job at the district. And when I moved out to Loudoun County, uh, after I worked at the Soil and Water District, I, I decided like, not only do I want to work with the farmers in the area and help them with environmental and conservation measures on their farm, but I want to participate and use some of the things that I learned working at Frying Pan in Herndon and do it myself. So, you know, slowly got a, got a very old 1950 farm all tractor from, from a neighboring farm. Is that Went, the one in, that I posted on Instagram today? Uh, let's see. It may, I haven't seen it yet. It may, it was a, if it's red and it's very old, it's probably the one. Um, and I've kind of stayed that trend. I use very older equipment that I can get at farm auctions and stuff. And hay is something that I can easily do uh, custom work on on neighboring properties. And I only do square bales, so I can sell to smaller producers, uh, folks with 
cattle, sheep, horses um, that are looking to buy a smaller quantity of hay where I can be their, their source of hay. So I'm not competing with somebody selling 20,000 bales a year, but it was a way that I could get into farming um, and only own three acres myself, but custom farm uh, around my house and kind of get a foot in the door with the agricultural industry in the county. Really cool. That's interesting to me. Um, and And you mentioned that originally you were invested in this because you wanted connection with folks on the other side of the river. So I assume you're talking about the Potomac. Correct. And, and you know, for, for people who are tuning in, especially outside of D.C. area, Lindsay or Chris, can you define how the report talks about Washington agricultural region? Where is that border drawn and why? Yeah. So, Kiko, I think I would embarrass myself if I tried to name off all of the counties in the Washington agricultural region, but it's essentially all of our Council of Government member jurisdictions in Maryland and Virginia and one or two counties out. And I think that um, the Regional Ag Work Group was kind of ahead of its time in not calling it a food shed, but talking about this concept of where does our local food come from, thinking about some of the farmer relationships um, that exist uh, across boundaries in some cases, um, cert- you know, certainly in terms of commerce, sometimes in terms of their own farms, but um, just recognizing that um, our, you know, local food doesn't come only from the COG region. So I think that was the big part of the reason for defining it like that. Yeah. And, and as Lindsay said, it's also sort of, you know, both in my in my Farm Bureau volunteer advocacy role and also with the Soil and Water Districts, I honestly have more contact on a month-to-month basis with soil and water professionals in Lee County, Virginia, down in the southwest corner, or, or with Farm Bureau members down there than I would with Frederick County, Maryland, mm. or Prince George's County, Maryland. So the COG uh, Regional Ag Working Group it is an important way because we share a lot of the same concerns about, you know, Bay Health, but also our production models are much more similar to, say, Montgomery County or Frederick County, Maryland, than they are to uh, Lee County, Virginia, even though the great Southwest is awesome and I would never take anything away from them. We share a lot more in terms of the expensive nature of our land and, and our, uh, you know, just our general economy up here. So it's, it's great to be able to bounce ideas off to sort of the professionals from the, the D.C. region. Um, and this is a way to do it that's not naturally occurring anywhere else. Right, right, absolutely. So, Lindsay, in a conversation we had a couple weeks ago, you said, from a data standpoint, there's a lot to be concerned about that this report brings out. What, what are some numbers that you're concerned about that the report illuminated? Well, Kiko, this probably won't be a surprise to you, but, you know, and it's, it's nothing to joke about. I just, I feel like I'm constantly talking about this with you but it it is very serious i know you probably feel like a broken record but most of my listeners probably don't hear it so don't feel bad yeah no i I absolutely don't feel bad um but i i in particular am really concerned about the dairy industry and um it's having a hard time across the northeast but i have seen some of these historic um graphs of dairy and the number of farms, it's just kind of a precipitous decline, unfortunately, over time. And over time, milk supply wasn't necessarily that deeply affected because we um, have made a lot of strides in animal genetics and production. And so while the number of farms was declining, production levels were staying relatively the same. But um, we, we don't have you know, relative to what we used to have in the region, nearly as many dairy farms. And 
I, you know, Chris said um, for a lot of people, agriculture is invisible. And I feel like dairy in particular is one of those industries that um, we just know less and less about, unfortunately. And they're hugely important to local farm economies in terms of their contribution um, economically, socially, um, in terms of land use. So that for me is a, is a big personal concern. Um, and before we move away from that, I, I was planning to ask you, cause I know that that issue is super close to your heart. You've wanted to actually discuss it on the show for a while. And, um, the report had a number that in Maryland, let's see, um, in 2017, Maryland and Virginia had 53% fewer dairy farms than in 2002. So I was planning to ask you about this, and I was planning to just ask you which dairy farms are making it, and how can Lunch Agenda listeners support those? Yeah, I um, I would probably defer to Chris on this a little bit, too. I mean, I think dairy farmers, like all farmers, are, you know, they're incredibly innovative. Um, so some are certainly that are able to, and it's not the right move for every farmer, are starting to do more direct market Um things in terms of like creameries, um, you know, cheese, ice cream, where that's, you know, where that's a possibility for their farm business. Right. Um, certainly we do have, you know, farms that are, that are hanging in there for sure. But it is, uh, I think Chris and I were talking about this this morning. It's like the fourth or fifth kind of down year in dairy. And um, there, there are based on production numbers alone or prices based on prices, yeah, right? based on prices and just, um, you know, how long can you, Hold afford, on. Yeah, afford to stay in business. Um, but we do. We have some great, actually, dairy experts in the region. Um, a colleague of ours um, whose family has been in the generation for, or has been in the business for generations. I'd love to send her on <laughs> sometime because she can talk about it more, uh, a lot more knowledgeably than I can. Anything you'd add, Chris? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you were looking for action items, the one thing you can think about is is. Uh, Obviously, you know, coming from coming from your show, your listeners are very cognizant of where their food comes from. Dairy is one of those things that almost by definition is a local product because it generally is not shipped as far as because it's perishable. Um, so it's really a problem that that our population is not consuming as much dairy. We eat a lot of pizza and things like that. But as far as fluid milk, that consumption has really dropped. And it is generally a pretty nutritious drink. Um, so if folks can make a choice to drink dairy, um, that will go a long way. It's also, you know, on the flip side of it, the, the industry has been harmed by the fact that it's gotten so good at what it does in that you've had farms get much, much, much more efficient. And so it takes more and more cattle to, to make that razor thin margin. And we've put a whole lot more milk on the market. So as Lindsay was saying, a lot of folks are looking to enter that value added industry um, there's some folks that I've, I'm friends with in Farm Bureau that have installed, actually built creameries on their farm so that they can process on farm, either to do ice cream or actually fluid milk that way. There's folks uh, up in Maryland like Rocky Point that's doing ice cream that's coming from their own fluid milk. Mm. Uh, Richland's Dairy is the one I was referring to down in Virginia and Dinwiddie County. So there's folks out there looking at that model. Um, and I would support those folks wholeheartedly if your listeners are looking to, to keep dairy active in Maryland and Virginia. Um, but also, if you're looking to support the industry, buy milk and recognize that when you see milk on the shelf, at whether it's Walmart and it's priced at $2 a gallon, that is not a sustainable price for any farmer, be they big or small. That is a loss leader product 
um, and trying to influence policy to really value food at what it costs to produce food, not as though it's a commodity to get to get butts in the store that can then purchase more expensive products. So I think our food system, and you've probably covered this before, gives people a false idea of how much how much work and and uh, expertise it takes to to produce um, even sort of our simple commodities, and it, it doesn't give the true value of the product. So I would say. Buy more milk, and if you can can utilize those folks that are doing on-farm processing, do that too. Really helpful. And I appreciate even that you listed a couple brands that we can look out for at our grocery store at farmer's markets. Rocky Point, Richland's Dairy. You know, of course, my mind goes to Trickling Springs, which is in Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. but is really drawing on dairies across the region as well. Um, so, so thank you for those specific ideas. Let's zoom out for a moment. One of the key facts from the preview is that agriculture is a, quote, significant economic sector in metropolitan Washington. And it lists economic impacts of about almost $16 billion in Maryland, about $70 billion in Virginia, and $5.5 billion in D.C. proper. So that's a total of about $92 billion. And I wanted to ask... Um, whether either of you can give me a little bit of context. It, it's 92 billion sector, about 480,000 residents employed by the sector. If we're looking at that 92 compared to other regions in the country, how does that fall? You know, what, what, what does that say about, about our region as an agricultural area? Well, one thing we like to brag on in Virginia, and I think, and Lindsay and I were talking about earlier, is we're, we're fairly certain Maryland can make the same claim, is that agriculture and forestry are Virginia's largest industries, period. Um, so, so looking at a, at a Commonwealth-wide basis, we are the biggest industry. Um, looking at That's it locally. That's really cool. It I, is. I, I it's didn't know you could say that. No, it's something to be proud of. And then looking Virginia more, is for lovers and. And farming. And farming. And people who love farming. And people who love farming. And, and trees. Exactly. And things that we can look at more locally, things that we can put a feather in our hat on in my locality of Loudoun. We've got more acres of grapes than anyone else in the Commonwealth. Um, we have a very large berry industry, direct market, lots of, lots of CSAs, farmers markets, um, sheep and goat, big mm-hmm. there, cattle farming, beef cattle, still very big. Um, so even in these intensively developed areas, we take advantage of that market access. So although we may not have the raw quantities that they may have in other areas, we have direct access to this D.C. market that means someone with you know, an 80-acre farm, but doing direct market, say, you know, meat at a farmer's market can make a go of it as a, as a very viable business um, and, 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 do, and do well. It's not going to be easy, but that's a story we need to tell to our, our decision makers and our representatives locally that these, not ju- these aren't just feel-good things, which they are that as well, but these are viable businesses that are long-term businesses that are not consumptive businesses so that they will be there long-term in your community. They're tax positive, unlike, say, residential development, and they, are, they add value to the community and that they give people a sense of being connected to the land uh, in their community. When you say they're not consumptive businesses, what does that mean? That means that, say, if you, if you are involved, other big businesses in this area involve, say, residential or commercial development. Well, those by definition, once an area is residentially developed, those developers move on somewhere else. So whereas our ag industry, these folks are in it for the long haul. Their farm is there for as long as that business is there, and the next farmer can come and farm that same piece of land. So that's what I mean. They are not consuming land. They're there and just sort of a a steward of it for their period of their life. 
It's a beautiful distinction. I think it's a really interesting distinction to think about. So, and and to your point, you know, listing those crops that we grow a surprising amount of, and, and that we're that are so close to the market that that they can be sent to. As a consumer, I was most interested to read about which crops farmers do and don't produce. Um, so, you know, for me and probably a lot of my listeners, farmers markets are our main touch point in the agricultural sector. And we go to the market, we see tables and tables of apples at this time of year, or, you know, tables and tables of berries, let's say in spring. And it's easy to assume that this bounty then goes ahead and feeds, you know, most, most mouths in this area. But, you know, Chris, you're saying that, that so much is grown here, but the report does, you know, show us the hard numbers of, of what percentage of our consumed food is grown here. So just to name a few of those numbers for the listeners, uh, farmers in this region grow 10% of the apples consumed in the region and 2% of the blueberries. So, you know, we see tables of blueberries, but we source 98% of blueberries from elsewhere. Um, so, you know, we start to appreciate as we're reading the report that, um, you know, farmers markets don't paint a, a total picture of the real sector. Let me just list a couple other numbers because I think they're interesting. 1% of the potatoes we eat are grown here. 1% of tomatoes. 2% of pork. The foods that we grow most towards our consumption are beans. 20% of, what, of the beans we eat are, are grown here. 16% of the, of the beef, to your point. And 19% of dairy, you know, so there is a pretty big dairy, you know, component here. Um, livestock production, it also talked about is shrinking. Um, so the, the number of chickens, hogs, beef and dairy cows are down by between 34 and 76% since from 1997 to 2012. So, so from a self-reliance perspective, I guess my point is it's pretty scary to learn how little what we of what we eat is actually grown here, or would you not be worried? You know, how do, how do you two feel about about this state of affairs? Lindsay and I were talking on the way over, and I'll let her cover this more in depth. But I really see this as an opportunity document showing how big the market is. There has been, and I am scared about the reduction in farmland acres in in my county, and that's why I'm so active to help preserve this acreage so we can continue to serve this market. But that being said, a lot of that shortfall is being driven by the fact that we are a, a vibrant economic area and people are flocking to live in Northern Virginia, D.C., and Maryland. Our populations keep going up. Talk about so today. I'll let, yeah, I'll tech, Lindsay can cover that more because her organization is intimately involved in some of these things. But again, I see, try to see it more of as an opportunity to say, geez, there's so much market opportunity here. And we'll never meet it because we keep getting more and more people, but there's opportunity. I've been so deep in school land today that I don't even know. Did Amazon make it official official that they're bringing 25,000 jobs to Crystal City? Lindsay? Um, Kiko, I understand that they did. And I'm sorry I can't tell you how they did that. But I know know that Virginia, um, I believe Virginia officially announced it today. And I know... Council of Governments put out a statement about the announcement as well. So, Interesting. Yeah. And a big, whole other big side news. of the Council of Governments. Uh, big news for the region. Right, yeah, right, yeah. right. Um, but I, I will say, I mean, one of the things that the Council of Governments does with its members is they look at how is the region going to grow over the next um, 10, 20 years. And so we are expecting another you know, million people to join us in the region by 2045. Presumably some of them will be coming. 
with the um, the new jobs that are that um, Amazon is going to be bringing. Um, and I think just getting back to the report, there's you know there's a lot of good news in it as well. And when we see some of these numbers around self-reliance, I think there's a couple things that are important to keep in mind. Um, one is that this is kind of an this is an academic exercise. Um, this you know this is the region that you know if any of your listeners have pulled up the report on page three around the metropolitan area that we are looking at um, as kind of as a as a food shed that our food's coming from. In reality, I personally think we need to be talking about a bigger region. I mean, I don't know about you, but um, we've only got one county in West West Virginia in the region. We don't have any from Pennsylvania, and I, you know, I know so a lot much of, of our food. Lo- yeah, what we consider local. A lot of food our, comes yeah, from, a lot of our from those areas. Yeah, certainly does. So, you know, one of the things before um, our cog members at the point that the report is finished and we start presenting it to them will be to think be thinking about, you know, is this an adequate region for us to be measuring as our food shed, or do we want to do something different? Um, the other thing is. You know, this is the the data is based on really good information um, gathered from um, USDA um, over the years, um, but it is it's not sort of a direct correlation between you know what we're producing and exactly what people are eating. It is this is what this is what we think the yield is relative to our population and to the demand. So, at, and as our population grows, if our production stays the same or slightly declines, we'll be, you know, less and less Good point. self-reliant, depending upon, again, partially how we're measuring the region, the production in it, the number of people in it. Sure, sure. So, I want to make sure that we talk about the other side of Chris's work, which is the land preservation. You just made a point, you know, what scares you is this, you know, this, the, um, the state of land that's available for farming. Um, you know, earlier in this decade, the council set a regional goal. It, it says in the report to maintain about 499,000 acres of land in farming. And the most recent data puts the region just 3,600 acres above that threshold. What has made the preservation possible? You know, how are we staying over that line? And what do you see, Chris, as the biggest threats to staying above that basically 500,000 acre line? Well, I sort of look at it as a two-pronged problem. In my, in my job with the Soil and Water District, I work with farmers who, and, and suburban landowners too who want to implement conservation envir- and environmental practices on their farms. So fence their livestock out of a stream, put in a water trough, plant cover crops, um, put in a rain garden. So those are things where we have land in production that we are doing conservation practices to help limit their environmental impact, say, on the bay and our local waters like the Potomac and, and the Anacostia and things like that. So that's, that's keeping our, our operations that are there friendly to the environment. The bigger issue is making sure that there is enough land available for those operations to implement those practices and feed us. Because it's a lot cheaper to get that environmental value out of putting in a buffer on a farm than it is to have to mitigate stormwater impacts coming off of an intensively developed uh, residential single-family home neighborhood. So I think when we look at making sure that we've got enough land to provide us both with food and the environmental services that land that, that, that open space, and most of that open space is ag and forest land, provides us, we need to make sure that we've got that critical mass of agricultural land available. 
There are tools out there that can be utilized by localities like purchase of development rights programs, transfer of development rights programs, private conservation easements. There's no one, one of these things that's going to be the magic bullet, but they all have to be utilized or we're going to lose the land and then it's not going to be worth it for our equipment dealers to be here, our you know, grain milling operations to be here, our livestock processing facilities. That's when things really start to fall apart. Then your farmer's markets don't have local producers. So I really am trying to convey to our, our local officials that it's really important and it's both, it both benefits us environmentally, it, environment, it benefits us fiscally because farmland does not consume taxpayer dollars. It is tax positive um, like commercial properties. So it, it, it lowers your taxes locally. It provides an economic benefit in that there's products being produced in your area and it's local dollars that can cycle within the community. So all those things make it critically important that we maintain that, that land, but it is so difficult when you have individual landowners making individual decisions based on when they sell their property. And that's why we need to have as many programs available, um, which even if they take some public investment up front, will return so many tax dollars uh, over the lifespan of you know eternity, basically, uh, that it will be so revenue positive for the county, it's unbelievable. So we need to offer a suite of practices to our producers to say, okay, are you done farming? All right, here's a purchase of development rights program so you can get some cash value out of your farm and still be able to keep it in ag production. Here's a transfer development rights program. Wow, we've got Amazon moving to Crystal City. Well, we'll send some development rights down there so you can keep farming on your property. Conservation easement, again, you voluntarily give up the right to subdivide some portion of your property in exchange for getting a very large tax credit out of it, and that land will stay protected so it serves an environmental purpose as well as a production purpose going forward. So again, lots of different benefits, lots of different solutions, but it's not an easy thing where you just say, well, if we just, you know, set up a social security program for land, then we'll be all set. Yeah. It's yeah. just a, it's, it's a whole, it's complicated, but it's not insurmountable. And that's why it's what really drives my passion for protecting agriculture in, in our region. I have so many questions for you. Admittedly, you know, this is actually the first time we've, we've been talking about um, land use and conservation on my show. My, my sister, Dana, who was actually a guest on my show two episodes ago was saying she really wants me to do a series on this. Um, so I like Dana. <laughs> She's your kind of girl. Um, I don't even know which question to ask, but are those programs that you just mentioned, are those happening? Are those like dream programs? They, they are happening. Okay. In, in, in my locality, currently, the only one that is actively happening is the private conservation easements run through organizations like Virginia Land Trust, Virginia Outdoors Foundation, uh, Old Dominion Land Trust, things like that. Um, the PDR program, the Purchase of Development Rights, and the Transfer of Development Rights programs, those are active in other localities in our area. So Montgomery County, Maryland has those programs, Frederick County, Maryland, Clark County, Virginia, uh, Frederick County, Virginia. Um, those are active programs that exist. We just need to get them replicated. Selfishly, I want them replicated in Loudoun County, and I think we're, we're seeing some good progress, some good bipartisan progress uh, with, with local officials on both sides of the aisle there, which I'm really excited about. Um, but, but we're not reinventing the wheel. We just need to make sure we put all the pieces, the, the, the spokes onto the wheel so the wheel can roll towards farmland conservation. What an image. Thank you. <laughs> um, the last question I'm going to ask before we have to kind of start closing up and moving towards our action items. 
your bio that you provided said in this role with Loudoun County, you you help both farmers and suburban landowners with conservation issues. So, you know, you're obviously advocating for the land and for the um, business livelihood for the farmers, but how are you actually helping suburban landowners? So with the suburban landowners, a lot of what we're doing is trying to um, implement conservation practices like on homeowners association properties. So it's things where if they've got uh, riparian area, so an area next to a stream, we can plant some trees there to help filter nutrients coming off those lawns to help clean up, clean up again, our local streams in the Bay Watershed. Um, we have a, a awesome new Virginia program called the Virginia Conservation Assistance Program, which helps pay for all sorts of practices like impervious surface removal. So if you've got a regular asphalt driveway, you want to replace that with permeable pavement or pavers, we can help you do that. You want to do a large-scale rainwater harvesting practice? We can help you do that. Rain gardens. So green it's rooms. helping um, landowners, yep. you know, repurpose their land to to you know have positive impacts on the environment. Correct. Okay. So we're trying to replace things, replace your regular lawn with things that are bent more beneficial to the environment. Okay. Okay. Just making sure that I understood that correctly. So. We are not going to have time to cover every number in the report. You know, the, the report talks about information about the average age of farmers, which it, it, it reveals is 59 years in this region, which compared to 58.3 nationally, um, as, as most recently measured by the USDA. So, you know, pretty much in line with the average. It talks about the average net net income of a farm in this region, which is $2,676 as of last measured. Um, and why that means that so many farmers, actually 63% of farmers work off farm like Chris. Um, it talks about, um, let's see, what, what else was I going to mention? I mean, one of the key themes that it talks about, and, and Lindsay, you and I were talking about this recently, is just the need to bridge the urban and rural agricultural communities or even agricultural interested communities in the case of, of maybe more often urban. Um, what was the biggest takeaway, Lindsay, regarding urban ag? You mentioned earlier that that was one of the things that this report needed to address that the USDA census didn't. Yeah, so there is um, a definition of what a farm uh, is in um, for the census of agriculture, and I think um, you know a lot of urban farms wouldn't necessarily qualify based on their size. So, but we this is something we've been collecting data kind of informally on for a couple of years. Uh, the District of Columbia has been doing it for some time, and some of our other jurisdictions are starting to do this as well. Um, there is just there's a ton of interest in it right now and i mean i think we've really seen explosive growth since this report was first written on you know not just urban farms but also community and school gardens um but i think it presents a lot of really interesting um opportunities and opportunities for kind of cross-pollination you know we've got some urban farmers in the district that have great connections to suburban and rural farmers and they can work together to, um, you know, produce a basket for a CSA or something else. You like know, Gail Taylor at three part harmony is a great example of that building. On, yeah. Building on each other's, you know, strengths. Um, when you've got a finite amount of land, there's probably some specific things you do and do not, you know, want produce. to do, yeah. do with that. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's exciting. You know, I think another thing that's exciting is just, um, you know, providing people with an opportunity to see food production in an urban context. 
um, the recreation and wellness benefits that that these um, that gardens and um, bring. And I'm sure you've delved into that much more in some of your other episodes. So I won't talk about that. Um, Where is the line drawn by the UST of what is a farm or not a farm? How many acres do you need to have to be counted? Um, actually, it's a sales. It's a sales um, qualification. Okay. I think it's. I think it's a thousand dollars in annual sales. So, okay, Chris probably has some opinions on that and what that does to the data. Yeah, and- it's it's a tough thing because there's all sorts of different definitions of farm depending on what category you're trying to cram them into. But Lindsay and I were talking kind of today earlier that. That one of the advantages of having urban farms, you know, you had mentioned some of this land that's going to be for lease in D.C., and that, that to me was super exciting. And then also, you know, there's Common Good City Farm downtown here. But the importance of having both sort of agricultural operations in urban and suburban areas gives the general public a window on how food is grown. They see where vegetables come from. They see fruit trees growing. They see animals. And it's much easier to feel connected to where your food's coming from, or the agricultural industry as a whole, when you can see it close by, and it's not something that's 100 miles away, it's equally important to have our agricultural producers close enough in so that they are connected to their consumers, because there's so much mistrust that gets sown when nobody's talking to each other, and it's very easy to to make sort of a caricature. So that's when I talk to my Farm Bureau friends from, from more rural parts of the state. I'm like, the value of having me here is being able to connect with our consumer. And the value of having these urban farms here is to be able to be um, sort, of, sort of the example in the community for our suburban and urban residents to say, wow, agriculture is real. I can be involved with it. And that's, that's the exciting part. And I have to really tip my hat to the farms that go way out of their way to lure us city people out there. I mean, of all the things that they have to do with their time and effort, when farms like Mountain View Farm have a barter fair that, fair that they invite us to, or Claggett has burgers and brews for the bay, um, that you know they are giving us chances to better understand, um, you know, why they grow what they grow and how we should choose what we find at the farmers market. And um, that's actually one last part of the report that I would highlight is that it really it 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 has proven that there's an increasing number of. Um, you know, agritourism and enterprises like those kinds of events or pick your own operations or farm weddings or tours and classes that farmers are getting, um, you know, more creative about how to bring people out and how to make revenue for their farm. So with that action item time, what do you two want to, and I actually have my own quick action item today. What do you two want to invite our listeners to change about their day-to-day life and food? Doesn't even need to have to do with agriculture or it could. I struggle with this, Kiko. I think you and others that know me, it's like, well, I have 10 recommendations. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, um, I was actually reflecting on your first episode with Maddie Beckwith. And wasn't her recommendation to cook more or something I along those lines? I thought hers was, my memory is crud, but I thought it was eat more vegetables. But well, she, you know, she could have easily said cook. No, I too. think you're, I think you're right. But I'm going to, I'm going to do sort of a variation on that, which I think, which is, um, you know, if you don't cook, consider cooking. Um, you know, I think one of the contemporary challenges we see with ag and food businesses, as you know, is just um, trends toward uh, prepared foods. And um, I know that I'm a big consumer of those myself, but 
I know that's kind of an area where I think we're going to see our local farmers continue to diversify into in the future, into some of that value-added processing. But we just, we produce so much great product here, fruits, vegetables, meats, dairy. Um, If you can work with it, um, it's good for your health. It's good for the farms. It's good for your family conversation. Great for your family Friend conversation. conversation. I love that one. Thank you. Oh, and and, get and a, that is my personal and a, action. And a local, always and perhaps fun. a local wine as well to go perhaps. with that. <laughs> and Chris. So, so my my action item is 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 two faceted. One towards your elected officials is if you are aware of a farmland conservation program in your community. Make sure your elected officials know that you support it. Again, it could be some support for conservation easements, support for purchase of development rights, uh, transfer of development rights. Because in the long run, that's going to save your your tax bill. It's going to go down. And secondly, kind of along the lines of what Lindsay said, is a comparatively small investment in making sure some of your food dollar goes towards locally sourced products will put a cycle of economic activity and also make you feel really awesome about supporting your community but that dollar will just continue to sort of churn in your community, and it'll help your your neighbor's little league team and their college fund. Um, and it doesn't have to be 50% of what you spend on food. Make it 10%. Um, look, look if there's a local section at the supermarket, buy there. If there's a, is there's a grocery store that you know that you like, ask them to stock something local. But again, you can go you can you can go much deeper. Do a CSA. Go to the farmers market. But again, start small. Just every once in a week, buy something local, and that'll really have some results for our farms here in the in the Cog region. I love the the notion of you know it becoming the little league, the farm that can then support the little league team or the you know the college fund, as you say. It's really tangible. My quick action item is it ties right into our theme actually of bolstering farmers in our region because it involves Fresh Farm, which is the nonprofit here in D.C. that organizes. 15 farmers markets around the area and full disclosure I am a member of their community engagement council but regardless they just kicked off their annual Thanksgiving fresh food drive Uh, Thanksgiving is a week and two days away and this is when they collect monetary donations from community members like me you our listeners to purchase fresh fruits veggies and turkeys from all the farmers in their network to give to their gleaning partners. And those gleaning partners are the food assistance organizations like DC Central Kitchen, Miriam's Kitchen, Thrive DC, all those who collect the leftover produce after each of their markets every week and feed it to those um, who need their help. So not only is this fresh food drive providing high quality meat and, and local produce to families who otherwise might never be able to access it for their holiday, But it also provides additional income to small farmers through the incremental purchase that the organization is making next week. So please consider donating. Fresh Farm is collecting donations all the way through the beginning of next week. And then they're going to be purchasing that food at market for each of those gleaning partners to provide the week, you know, to provide up through Thanksgiving next Thursday. You can find more information at freshfarm.org. You can go to the Market Info 10 at your Fresh Farm Market and have some hot cider after you donate. Uh, So that's my little shameless plug. It's been wonderful talking to you too. I'm really glad that we covered, um, as I said in the beginning, kind of a part of the food system that I'm not as used to doing is talking about numbers and talking about kind of bird's eye view sector and really talking about land conservation. So 
Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Chris. I want to just make a plug for those who want to learn more and follow the update and, and really dig into this report. I did I did link it on my Instagram profile at Kiko Buff, but you can follow Lindsay at MWCOG on Twitter. Lindsay Plans is her own personal Twitter. Lindsay Plants, with a T, is her Instagram account. And then um, Chris is not as as busy with the social medias but no i would say i would invite folks if, if check check uh, both loudon soil and water conservation district and loudon county farm bureau out on facebook easy search items and you'll get to see all sorts of conservation and ag activities going on in loudon county thanks chris all right we're signing off for lunch agenda today um, i will be off next week for thanksgiving week but i'll talk to you in two weeks and thanks so much for taking time out of your day to dig into really important stuff about food and um, our role in it have a great day thanks Keith. thank you